0: All right, what's up, Ninja Nerds? We're here for episode 10. Today we're talking about atrial fibrillation. This is a huge topic, but it's got a lot of really important information you have to know. We're cruising here. We're already on our 10th episode, another day, another podcast. We're having a lot of fun and we hope you are too. Before we really get into it though, please guys make sure to check out ninjanerd.org. We'll have our, our illustrations, we'll have notes, everything you need to really further your learning. So please go ahead and sign up for that. I think you guys will be really impressed with it. So Zach, we're here. We're talking about AFib. Are you feeling it? Are you excited? Yeah. AFib is really cool. It's a great topic. And again, I want to go off of Rob. What he was saying is
1: f- get those notes. I think one of the big things with podcasts is that as we're talking into these, sometimes you can kind of get lost within, uh, you know, us just kind of talking and talking and talking. So have those notes by, you know, by your side and be following along with us as we're talking about the, this discussion here.
0: But without further ado, let's get right into AFib. Zach, tell us a little bit about the pathophysiology, a little bit about the common causes that we have to be uh, aware of. Yeah. So when we talk about uh,
1: AFib, the pathophysiology behind this is pretty straightforward. You have abnormal electrical activity within the heart. So these atrial cells are either forming like these little ectopic foci. So they're just agitating. They're firing and firing and firing. Usually the SA node is pretty much the pacemaker of the heart. It's the one that should be firing, setting the rate. But... In situations like atrial fibrillation, those ectopic atrial cells are just starting to fire undesirably and just not within the normal rate that we would have or rhythm. In these situations, what's the particular cause behind someone having this kind of abnormal electrical activity? There's a bunch of them. One is think about cardiac disorder. So what's going on with the heart that can actually cause this abnormal electrical activity within the atrial cells? One of the big things is, are we stretching the atria? Are we making the atria super jacked up and hypertrophic? Those kinds of things could be very straightforward. If you have a patient with heart failure, dilated cardiomyopathy, mitral regurgitation, mitral stenosis, hypertension, ischemic heart disease, those are super obvious kind of like mechanical cardiac causes that can actually cause dilation, stretching of the atria or make the actual atria super hypertrophic. And when you do that, you alter the electrical like activity within those atrial cells and again, lead to them forming reentrant circuits, ectopic foci, firing undesirably, not within the same kind of rate or rhythm of the SA node, leading to this kind of, Like irregular rhythm, as well as potentially sometimes even tachycardic above our normal rate. So that's one thing. Second thing is think about the non-cardiac disorders. So think nothing to do with the heart. So things like, for example, low oxygen within the blood, hypoxemia. Think about the lungs. Is there something going on with the lungs that they're not actually adequately ventilating, oxygenating the blood? Do they have like a chronic COPD? Do they have an acute pulmonary embolus? Do they have acute pneumonia? Those are big things to think about. The other thing here is, do they have an increased sympathetic drive? If you have a lot of norepinephrine epinephrine, that's actually floating in your circulatory system, they're gonna bind on to those beta receptors in the heart super significant agitation to those actual atrial cells, and it'll cause them to start firing undesirably, again, leading to this irregular and fast rhythm. What could be potential things that can increase your sympathetic drive? So your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight state. One of those things could be if you're super hypovolemic. So if your blood volume is low, you're losing blood, you're losing plasma volume. That would be one reason. Another one is your septic. When you're septic, your blood pressure is low. Your body's trying to be able to protect you by increasing your heart rate, increasing the contractility of your heart. Because in a way, by doing that, you're trying to be able to protect the body. And so it amps up the sympathetic surges. Another one is if you have like a big whopping tumor in your adrenal medulla that's just pumping out epinephrine and norepinephrine, like a pheochromocytoma, that can also kind of like sympathomimetically act like epinephrine, norepinephrine, and again, increase your heart rate, increase the actual agitation to those atrial cells. In the same way, maybe you're not endogenously making epinephrine, norepinephrine from a tumor. Maybe you're taking medications that are super similar to epinephrine, norepinephrine. You're utilizing booger sugar, the (laughs) cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're utilizing like Ritalin or Adderall, things like that that are some pathometrics that can act like norepinephrine, epinephrine. The other thing is you're utilizing other drugs that maybe have beta activity and that works on those atrial cells, agitates them. So things like albuterol, dobutamine, milrinone, epinephrine, norepinephrine, all of those drugs, isoproteranol, those can definitely kind of pick up the heart rate, agitate those atrial cells and cause potentially an arrhythmia. The other thing is hyperthyroidism. So hyperthyroidism can do two things. One is it can increase the basal metabolic rate within your atrial cells, causing them to be a little bit more agitated, fire a little bit more prematurely. The other thing is it can increase the sensitivity of your sympathetic nervous system. So those beta receptors on the heart, hyper like whenever you have hyperthyroidism, it makes those receptors super sensitive to any drop of norepinephrine, epinephrine, that they will just respond intensely to it. So look for that. The other thing is electrolyte abnormalities, like low potassium, hypokalemia, low magnesium, hypomagnesemia. Those two things are super important ones and easy to check and easy to reverse. And then also alcohol. So particularly like in high concentrations of alcohol, like, you know, if you're going out binge drinking and you just turn 21, I'm just going to go ahead and pound like 21, you know, yinglings, or I'm going to go ahead and just pound whatever kind of like Manhattan, I don't know, random drinks. It's like super random drinks that I just named. Hey, man, that, <laughs> hey, too much throw
0: right?
1: Yeah. But if you're pounding those, that can actually cause a lot of like uh, potentially like free radical formation, inflammatory states that can actually agitate those atrial cells and also cause electrolyte derangements. So look for that as well. But yeah, that would be the big kind of like pathophys and causes behind this uh, atrial fibrillation topic, Rob.
0: Let's move right into features and some complications, some things that we have to be on the lookout for AFib. So Zach, let's just say, I mean, this doesn't happen very often, right? You don't just see a patient come in and say, hey brother, I think I got the (laughs) AFibs. I don't know why I just channeled my inner Hulk Hogan. I know. (laughs)
1: Hey, brother. Hey, hey, brother. I got the AFibs.
0: <laughs> but, but, you know, in all seriousness, this does not happen, right? It just, it just, it's not that obvious. Um, and there's some scenarios where it might be a little bit more obvious, but really it's, it doesn't happen that way. Um, so how do we identify AFib, Zach? What do you do in the clinical setting? Yeah, it was really tough to sometimes
1: like you know you're not gonna have a patient who's gonna come in and say that yeah, especially like Hulk Hogan. But uh, usually these patients, some of like the non-specific symptoms that they may present with, and if you're intelligent enough to be able to order an ECG and pick it up, could be like things like syncope. They might have like a syncopal event. They may be short of breath. They may be like. Particularly short of breath when they're exerting themselves. They may just feel super fatigued. They may feel palpitations. Um, those are some of the symptoms. Oftentimes, they're relatively asymptomatic. Sometimes if you're lucky enough, you get a pair of vitals on a patient and you see that they're tachycardic because uh, they're an AFib with a rapid ventricular rate. That white might be one thing. Or if you have, you know, someone who's checking the pulse and they feel like an irregular kind of like pulse, like an irregular regular rhythm to their pulse. That may kind of potentially make you think about AFib. Oftentimes, it's kind of like unfortunately found. Um, you have a patient who comes in with a stroke. Um, you have a patient who comes in with an acute limb ischemia or mesenteric ischemia or a renal infarct, splenic infarct, or something of that nature because of the embolic phenomenon that patients have with uh, AFib. So AFib with this kind of condition, remember I told you those atrial cells are kind of like prematurely firing they're super agitated they're really electrically excited and they send action potentials down to the av node trying to be there before the sa node um, and so this can actually again happen due to the ectopic foci these reentrant circuits all those different causes that we talked about lead to those atrial cells prematurely firing trying to get signals to the av node before the sa node when that happens This can happen in multiple atrial cells. So imagine the atria trying to normally contract versus just like quivering. It's just like shaking or shivering. (laughs) So you're not getting good, adequate atrial contractions. So the atria is not actually pushing a total volume of blood that it should be from the atria into the ventricles. So more blood than usual stays within the atria. So that's a stasis of blood flow. Virgo's triad says that if you have stasis of blood flow, you can increase the risk of forming thrombi or clots. So then you form a clot within the left atrium. You go ahead and flick one of those bad boys off, goes right up into your carotid artery. Boom. You end up with a stroke or anterior spinal artery, end up with anterior spinal artery syndrome or down a mesenteric vessel. And you end up with acute mesenteric ischemia or down like a popliteal or like tibial artery. And boom, you get an acute limb ischemia or down like a renal artery and you get a renal infarct or down a splenic artery and you get a splenic infarct. So those are usually the complications that we may see with stroke being by far the most common. The other way that you might have is a patient may come in and they're hypotensive. So, You have a patient who's tachycardic. You have a patient who's also like low blood pressures. That may be something called cardiogenic shock. So sometimes if a patient is actually having a very fast heart rate, AFib with RVR, they're beating at like heart rate greater than 150 beats per minute. And it's very, very significantly sustained. You're not giving the heart an adequate amount of time to be able to fill with blood because it's just beating nonstop. And so if it can't fill with blood, it's not getting a good preload. It's not getting a good stroke volume. It's not getting a good cardiac output. And so they end up with a hypotension. low blood pressure. On top of that, if you don't allow blood to fill into the heart, where's it going to go from the left side? It's not going to be able to go from left atrium to left ventricle. So it's just going to back up into the pulmonary circulation and lead to pulmonary edema. And so these are some of the potential features that we may see as complications of AFib, such as the embolic phenomenon or the cardiogenic shock due to AFib with RVR. If you are good and you pick up the nonspecific symptoms, look at the risk factors, you may be able to pick it up um, off of some non-specific things like like syncope or palpitations or dyspnea on exertion or fatigue. Hmm, cardiogenic shock.
0: Sounds awfully familiar.
1: Right? I know, right? Didn't we just cover like shock? Just like what, last week? We
0: just covered it. If you, <laughs> got, if you guys haven't watched it already, or I always say what I want to say watch on a podcast. You oh, listen. Yeah, you yeah. Listen to it. Yeah. You got to listen to it. Use your ears. <laughs> <laughs> you got to listen to the shock episode. It was really, really good. So check that out if you haven't already. But let's talk diagnosis. So diagnosis. Diagnosing AFib. How do we diagnose AFib, Zach? Is it something very, very difficult? How do you usually approach this?
1: So, in a perfect world, usually 12 ADCG will be the diagnosis, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be in AFib when you go ahead and shoot that EK- EKG. So, you can go ahead and get the EKG on a patient. They may be in AFib and you pick it up, boom, there's your diagnosis. Uh, if you see that kind of like Obviously, whenever you're reading EKG, we obviously have a video on that if you want to go watch it on YouTube. But <laughs> when we talk about these, first thing you have to determine if they're sinus, right? So they have P waves in, that are upright and lead 2, inverted in AVR, and every P wave is followed by a QRS and a T wave. And these patients, they will not have any P waves in, that are upright in lead 2, not inverted in AVR, and they won't be followed by, uh, a, again, a QRS wave. And these patients, they have like fibrillatory waves or they have no P waves. Um, and so generally, that's one thing. No P waves, or maybe if you get lucky, you can see fibrillatory waves in like V1. Uh, The other thing is that it's irregular. So usually if you want a regular rhythm, so you want it to be the same R to R wave distance or interval in these patients, their R to R interval is going to be variable. So it can be very, very irregular rhythm. The other thing is usually in a perfect world, as long as they don't have like a bundle branch block or something like that, usually the QRS complex is a relatively narrow QRS complex. So less than like, you know, the 120 milliseconds. So generally that's the way that you can basically perfectly in a perfect world pick up atrial fibrillation. But let's say that the patient is not in AFib when you shoot the EKG. You may say, oh, they're not in AFib. They could still be in AFib. You just missed it. And so sometimes putting them kind of like on what's called a Holter monitor or like a loop recorder or an event recorder, doing that outpatient and kind of like 24 hour, like 48 hour monitoring of the patient, you may pick up AFib at some point in time within the day or night. The other thing is if you don't want to do that outpatient, you feel like the patient needs a little bit more like inpatient monitoring, you can actually do what's called continuous telemetry. So you're constantly all throughout the entire 24-hour period that they're in the hospital monitoring their rhythm and you're actually having that up on the screen and people are watching that in real time. So those would be ways that I would do it. That would pick up the... Um, Specifically the arrhythmia, but I think the other thing that you want to diagnose with AFib is do they have that left atrial thrombus? And the best way to do that is an echo, not a TTE. You may be able to pick up a thrombus, but I think the TEE is going to be the best thing to be able to pick up a left atrial thrombus because that's a huge complication with AFib.
0: Zach, I got my Apple Watch. I can tell if I'm an AFib with that, right? <laughs> I, I don't and, know. Any, any trust behind that?
1: Ah, uh, I mean, they say that you could. I mean, I think they have like those single lead ECGs. I, I mean, I have the Apple Watch too, but I don't use it that often. But yeah, I think they do say that it's relatively good at being able to pick up AFib. I, again, I I don't know like the actual quality of it, but I Which would, would just be kind be, of crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it, it, it's out there and they're actually kind of like claiming that they definitely can do it, I,
0: I would you know maybe they're actually pretty good at it. Hmm. Could be cool, right? <laughs> All right. So we talked a lot about the causes of AFib. There's so many of them, but really importantly, is it it important to really (laughs) look at the underlying causes? Should you be like, oh, you know what? I got to go down every single thing that we just talked about and really try and figure it out. Is there any worth behind that, Zach? Or is it just like, meh, I'm not going to really do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Meh.
0: I love it. Um, So, yeah, I think it's really important to be able to do that. Um,
1: Sometimes if we just want to put a Band-Aid on the issue, oh, they have AFib, just put them on this medication. That's fine, um, but I think you should try your best to be able to find out because what if a patient's been on AFib and they've only been on AFib for a little bit of time? you might be able to kind of like get them out of AFib and get them back into normal sinus rhythm. The longer they're, they're in AFib, the higher chance of them basically forming an atrial thrombus, the higher chance that they'll stay in AFib for a long, long, long time and never be able to get converted out of AFib. So I think it's really important to be able to find out why they're in AFib. And if you, as a reversible cause, you'll be able to prevent them from developing like a long kind of standing or permanent AFib. And that's a really important thing to try to do. So I think it's, it's good to be able to assess those cardiac kind of like causes. So getting an echo, that's a big thing. if you think that it's a pulmonary thing, maybe consider like a chest x-ray to rule out a pneumonia or a CTPA to rule out a pulmonary embolism, especially if it's like an acute, like an acute onset AFib. I would consider those um, hyperthyroidism. I would be checking your thyroid function test. That's a big one. Big, big one. Um, if you really are concerned about an ac- acute one, not only just with PE or a pneumonia, maybe wor- work up like sepsis. Sometimes if a patient's like septic, they can definitely develop a nuance at AFib. So checking like CBCs and cultures and imaging to find like the septic source. Um, if they fit like that perfect picture of like a pheochromocytoma, go ahead, order a metanephrines. Um, and then if you think that they're actually having some type of potential drug use, like they're using the Boga sugar, they got other medications that are sympathomimetics like PCP and things like that, you can go ahead and check a tox screen. Um, but I think the other one is this is a really easy one. Check a BMP. Maybe they got low. Okay. Check a magnesium. Maybe they have low magnesium. If you replete those, who knows, maybe they might actually kind of be able to potentially reverse the underlying AFib. And then you can kind of treat them, which we'll talk about the medications later to try to prevent them from being kind of a long-standing permanent AFib. And again, increasing the risk of amvoli, increasing the risk of them staying in AFib for the rest of their life. So I think it's important
0: to find the cause. All right, we're moving along here. Let's go right into treatment. We're almost done here, guys. We got the really important part here. This is kind of the the, the meat of, of this podcast is really figuring out what is the treatment for AFib um, going through unstable, stable, rate control, rhythm control, antiquags, a lot to it. Zach, what do you think? Yeah. So
1: with atrial fibrillation is important to be able to know is the patient unstable or stable? Cause that's obviously a quick decision. If they're unstable, you shock them. It's always electricity. If the patient's unstable, they're hypotensive, they're altered, they have like terrible chest pain, pulmonary edema, and they're tacking away like 220 beats per minute. Then yeah, you, <laughs> I'd, I'd shock the, I'd shock the crap out of them. So <laughs> hit them with electricity, direct current cardioversion. And, you know, that's generally the treatment for those patients. Um, which, that's pretty straightforward, right? If they're relatively stable, their hemodynamics are fine, they're mentating, they're not having any chest pain, they're not having any pulmonary edema, they look good, but they're just tachycardic. They would re- potentially respond to something such as rate control or rhythm control. The decision of whether you're going to rate control somebody, like try to get their heart rate a little bit lower. So for example, there's some actual literature to say that we should target a heart rate for patients according to like the race trial of a heart rate less than 110 for outpatients. I don't know about critically ill patients. I might maybe a little bit okay to say, be okay with a compensatory tachycardia of like 120 to 130, but either way, try to lower their heart rate what will be the way that you can do that. We can give them medications to block the AV node, so any of those like abnormal, like premature signals that are coming from those agitated atrial cells and not the SA node, you can try to shut down by giving drugs that block the AV node so it doesn't receive any signals from those abnormal atrial cells. That'd be a rate control. Um, The other way is you can try to be able to shock them and then reset the heart, try to shut down those abnormal electrical atrial cells and see if that you can help them to put them back into normal sinus rhythm. So those are the two ways that you can do that. Uh, And you can, when we talk about these again, rate control versus rhythm control, how do we know which one? There's a lot of debate with this. Some people actually say that rate control is superior to rhythm control, I think when you look at them, you have to have a potentially it's a a patient, patient, patient by patient basis. So for example, just a quick example, if I had a patient who came to me and they had AFib and they've been in AFib for years, like I'm talking like 20 years, the likelihood of me being able to convert them out of AFib is very low. (laughs) Okay. So I'm probably not going to target a rhythm control like strategy. So that's one thing. The other thing is if they've um potentially have a very high risk of a stroke and I don't have them on anticoagulation I probably wouldn't go ahead and cardiovert them because now I have a high risk of, if I do convert them and they go back into normal sinus, they can break off that clot and throw it up into a cerebral artery. So I think those are potential things to think about of when you would actually rather rate control somebody than rhythm control. The time where I would pick rhythm control is if they've not been in AFib for very long, um, maybe like less than 48 hours, it's a new onset AFib, um, and they would benefit from being able to get them out of AFib and they don't have any thrombus in their atria, go ahead, cardiovert them. Um, and I think that's the things to think about, but when we talk about rate control, what do we use? Beta blockers are pretty much your common one metoprolol, uh, calcium channel blockers. You can use things like diltiazem. Uh, you can also use diljoxin. Digoxin is actually somewhat beneficial in patients who have heart failure. So if they have heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, digoxin might actually be a nice drug. Some will actually say that amiodarone can be, can put in these categories, especially if a patient's like been in AFib for like most of their life, they're not likely going to convert. And so amiodarone can actually rate control them. But in the same way, we have rhythm control. So now we're trying to be able to, again, get them out of AFib into normal sinus rhythm. And we can do that two ways. One, we already talked about. If they're unstable, you shock them. But let's say that they're stable, but you just want to get them out of this and you don't want to give them a medication. So you don't want to give them something like, for example, amiodarone, abutilide, procainamide. There's so many different ones out there. If you don't want to use a medication, you can shock them. And we'll talk about which patients would actually be best to shock and which ones are not. If you don't want to shock them, you don't want to give electricity to uh, rhythm control them or cardiovert them, you can do it chemically and you can use medications such as amiodarone. It's going to be one of the big ones out there. Uh, procanamide, maybe, butylide. Those are some of those that I think be somewhat beneficial, maybe even lidocaine. But with those situations, if you're going to rhythm control somebody with those medications, you should be aware that those do have a risk of increasing your QTC and therefore putting you at potentially a higher risk of torsades to points. So that's something to consider with these medications. But so what would you say
0: then, Zach, would you would you say that? Which one's more superior, rate control or rhythm control?
1: I'd say in the patients who I usually experience who, again, who have been in AFib for a long time. So they're chronic AFibbers. They've been in AFib for like 20 years. It's unlikely that if I go ahead and try to rhythm control them, so I shock them or I give them amiodarone that they'll convert. So, And I think that's one big thing. The other thing is I would want to make sure that I have definitive evidence that they do not have a clot in their left atrium because if I go ahead and rhythm control them and I go ahead and convert them to normal sinus and they pop that clot off and I can't anticoagulate them or it's not effective for me to anticoagulate them at that point in time, they're going to develop a stroke potentially. And so I'm going to get in big trouble for that. So I think one of the big things to think about is – Trying to rationalize your decision-making process here depends upon the patient. It's really a patient-by-patient basis. The ones where I would rhythm control somebody, where I would like cardiovert them potentially, whether it be chemically or uh, electrically, would be the ones who are new onset. Like this is a definite new onset AFib, no history. It's been less than 48 hours and they have no clot in their left atrium. I'll cardiovert them that those aren't, those are actually kind of, it would be supported by the guidelines, but if they have a clot, I'm not sure if they have a clot or they've been in a for a long time, I'm not going to go ahead and rhythm control them. I'm just going to go straight to rate control. So that would be the things I would consider. And again, rhythm control, you have electrical, you have chemical. It really just depends on the clinician, depends upon uh, the patient, which one you're going to choose. Uh, the other thing that I think is actually somewhat beneficial in these patients is you can consider surgical uh, options. So sometimes what you can do is you can actually just do a AV node ablation. And so if you ablate the AV node, all those signals that are coming from those abnormal atrial cells that are just like firing and firing and firing, telling the AV node to fire before the SA node is actually telling them, you can just blast out the AV node and then put in a permanent pacemaker. And so then the pacemaker will take over the rate. It won't be able to respond to any of these abnormal atrial cells that are trying to you know push this patient into faster heart rates or irregular rhythms. So that's a pretty cool option as well. But I think this begs the question, okay, I have a patient who I'm rate controlling, or I'm rhythm controlling, or whatever. How do I know which ones I need to protect from that clot busting off or they're at high risk of a clot busting off and floating up into a cerebral artery and causing a stroke? Because that's a, It's a very significant and serious thing that I need to be able to watch out for. How do I know which patients that need this? So we can use a lot of different things to uh, analyze this. So if we have a patient, we can look at what's particularly, we can look at their chad VAS score. Before we talk about that, you can actually determine whether or not you're going to anticoagulate somebody a little bit also off of something else, time frame. So if I have a patient who's an AFib, and again, they've been in it in less than 48 hours, their risk of CVA is low, meaning that I have like a TEE that proved that they don't have a big fat clot in their left atrium. I think that those are patients that would benefit from cardioversion. And then after I cardiovert them, I can put them on anticoagulants for a couple weeks, like three weeks. But if I have a patient who's been an AFib for a long time, greater than 48 hours, let's say, they have a high risk of a CVA, um, so again, a stroke, we have a TEE and it shows that they got a big fat clot in their left atrium, I'm not going to cardiovert them, I'm going to anticoagulate them for maybe about a month, like three to four weeks, come back get another TEE, to reassess it, and then after that, I can go ahead and cardiovert them and then continue anticoagulation for a while. So that's kind of the ways that I would go about that. But how do I know whether I'm going to continue the anticoagulation for like maybe like lifelong? How do I know? We utilize the thing called the CHADS VASC score. So this basically is a way of determining lifelong anticoagulation for the patient. So if they have CHF, they get a point. If they have hypertension, they get a point. If their age is greater than 75, they get two points. If it's 65 to 74, they get one point. If they have diabetes, they get one point. If they had a history of a stroke or a TIA, they get two points. If they have a history of any kind of like cardiovascular disease, like peripheral artery disease within their legs, coronary artery disease, they have like a valvular heart disease. They get a point. If they're a female, they get a point. You add all these up, use MD calc for this. It's a classic thing that you app that you can use there. When you calculate it, if their score is zero, you don't got anticoagulate. Then they have a very low risk of throwing a clot in their brain. If Um, Their score is like one. It's like indeterminate. You don't really have an idea. It could be possible It's a tough decision to make. But if it's two or over, it's pretty clear they likely will need anticoagulation. And so in those situations, that would kind of warrant that decision to put them on anticoagulant. Now, what are the anticoagulants I can start them on? I can use a bunch of them. There's like, for example, the first one that we obviously know about, uh, which was pretty much the first one to start was warfarin. So warfarin or Coumadin. It's a pretty big one that's actually utilized, but there's a very specific kind of like indication for these that you guys need to know for your boards and your exams, which is valvular atrial fibrillation. So do they have like a mitral stenosis? Do they have like a prosthetic, like mechanical valve, especially the mechanical valves? If they have a mechanical valve, they need warfarin. It's the only one that's like FDA approved for that. So if it's like a valvular AFib, like a mitral stenosis or a prosthetic valve mechanical type, they need warfarin. If they don't have that, if it's like a non-valvular AFib, you could actually be fine doing something like a DOAC. So this is going to be, for example, like rivaroxaban, apixaban, also known as Xarelto and Eliquis, respectively. And so in these situations, I think these are great drugs, but they just cannot be used if you have a prosthetic valve or you have like a mitral stenosis. One of the benefits to utilizing this drug in comparison to warfarin is with warfarin, you have to monitor something called an INR. And that kind of sucks because there's a lot of different drugs and foods and things like that that can alter your INR and you have to get frequent monitoring. And so one of the things with this is if your INR is not within the particular level that you want, you can be at high risk for a clot. So for example, we'd like to aim for two to three, but if you have a mechanical valve, you might have it a little bit higher, like 2.5 to 3.5. But for example, let's say that's low, less than two, you're at high risk of forming a clot. So then you got to up the drug concentration or the dose if it's higher than 4.5 let's say it's like seven now you're at high risk of bleeding and so you need to like you maybe hold the drug for a little bit and then decrease the dose so those are things that are actually kind of like a little bit challenging with with warfarin it's a high risk of bleeding with that one the other thing is with the rivaroxaban and the apixaban, you don't have to do that it's actually you don't there's no monitoring required and there are lower risk of bleeding with those so that's a nice thing about those drugs the other thing that I think is important is heparin. Um, heparin is more likely going to be utilized in the hospital, but it's primarily a bridge. So you have a patient who comes into the hospital and you want to get them started on anticoagulation, but you want to be very, very careful. You want to make sure that they don't have any risk of bleeding. You want to monitor their actual anticoagulant levels like consistently. You can measure something called a PTT and you can put them like a heparin infusion or like a subcutaneous heparin and you can monitor their PTT levels to make sure that you're within the proper therapeutic range, that you're not too high, that you're there at high risk of bleeding or too low, that they're at high risk of clotting. And usually after the kind of get them at that nice therapeutic dose. They've been good. They haven't had any bleeds. They've been actually stable with that. You can bridge them over and switch them over to one of the two warfarin if they need it long-term or a apixaban, rivaroxaban long-term. So that's an important thing to remember. The last thing I would say is you have to be very, very careful. If you put someone on anticoagulation, you have to consider that there is a high risk of bleeding. Um, that's one of the things that we all, I also see in the neuroscience ICU is they put on anticoagulation they know with a, a brain bleed. How do we kind of determine their risk of bleeding versus their risk of clotting? So you utilize the CHADS-VASC to determine their kind of like mortality, but potentially of developing like a stroke um, and their need for anticoagulation, but you also use something called the HAS-BLED score to determine the risk of bleeding from like potentially putting on anticoagulation and patients with afib and so utilize those two scores to like risk stratify determine what's their potential risk of actually developing bleeding if they have a super high has bled score and it's like you know man i don't really know if i want to put this patient on anticoagulation sometimes you can pursue other options such as like a watchman device where they kind of like plug this the left atrial appendage closed and that left atrial appendage is the area where they usually the clots form and if you block that off it's like pretty much impossible for you to form a thrombus there so that's somewhat beneficial in these patients that you can try for but yeah that
0: covers the treatment, Rob. I hope. that made sense yeah it made perfect sense there's a lot of information but it was awesome it was it was perfectly explained so thank you for that but guys that concludes our 10th episode on atrial fibrillation again i hope you're following along with some illustrations i hope you're following along with some notes from our website if you aren't please go ahead and check it out get on ninja become a member you won't regret it but there it goes that's another episode zach well
1: done. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you guys for letting me be here today and talk to you guys again about AFib. And I hope that you guys enjoyed it. I hope it made sense. I hope that it shed some light on this somewhat complicated topic. And, uh, and engineers, thank you. Love you. And as always, until next time.